Good morning. Such a privilege to be here with you this morning to preach God's Word. It's always a privilege to preach God's Word. And uh, you'll be voting on us tonight, but we'll see how this goes, I guess, right? I told somebody this morning, a little nervous about preaching before being voted and considered for membership. So uh, we'll see how it goes. But, uh, of course, it's always dependent upon the Lord. It's His Word. It's His power. It's His grace that has saved us and is saving us and sanctifies us through His Word. So it's a privilege to be here, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to preach this morning. So uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. This morning we're going to consider a bit of an audacious title, I guess, but I think you'll, you'll get my drift after we read the text. It's how to live a good life, the good life. I'm using the, the uh, object there, the good life. So how to live the good life. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. So let us hear now the word of the living God, where Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived my concern for me, your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. It's not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now there's a key word. You want to underline something, highlight something, write a big bubble around it. I've learned how to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, all-sufficient word. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. God, I pray that you would teach us how to be content. You would teach us to be content in Christ. Teach us all that we have, all the riches that we have in him, Lord. And for being one here or those here who do not know you, who are looking for love, I pray they'd find it in Jesus Christ because you find them. You would work in their hearts to draw them irresistibly, draw them effectually to yourself unto salvation. Lord, I pray that this morning we leave here satisfied in you, that you would plant your word deep in our hearts, you would cause an abundant harvest of righteousness to grow up in us for your glory. pray all this in the strong, the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Well, you probably know this. I don't think I have to tell you, but I'm going to say it anyway. Fallen human beings are not naturally content. In fact, I would argue that we are naturally discontent. In fact, I'm, I'm preaching this sermon this morning. I, I joked with the pastors about I think I'm a leading expert in discontentment. So I feel really comfortable preaching this sermon this morning on not content, how to be content, but you get to the part about discontentment, that's really my wheelhouse. And you say, well, I could compete with you for that, I'm sure. We are not a content people. We see this with regard to our money. John D. Rockefeller, generally considered the wealthiest man in American United States history, lived in the late 19th, early 20th century. Someone asked him, how much money would it take to make you content? And he very famously said, just a little bit more. Just 
a little bit more. This is a man who had hundreds of billions of dollars. And yet, to be content, he needed just a little bit more. Maybe we need to ask Shohei Otani that after, uh, after 10 years, right? After what happened yesterday in baseball. We see this with fame and, 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 our, and our athletes. In 2005, uh, after leading the New England Patriots to a third Super Bowl win, Tom Brady, considered one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And he said this. He said, there's got to be more than this. He was asked something along the lines of, how does this make you feel? Are you happy now? Are you content now? But he said, there's got to be more than this. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still there's something out there greater for me? You now have seven Super Bowl rings and I, I think you'd probably say the same thing. Now we might expect this from non-Christians. Say, well, they don't have Christ and that's right. But what about us? What about us who have this great Savior that we've spent the last half hour singing about? This Savior who came to die in our place to give us eternal life. To meet the deepest needs of our heart. What about us? Are we content? Are we really content? We have this immeasurably rich inheritance laid up in heaven. But do we really have contentment? C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's it, isn't it? We were made for another world. This is why Tom Brady is dissatisfied with all those Super Bowl rings and why John Rockefeller wasn't satisfied with all that money. We were made for another world. Until we learn to find satisfaction in that world and not this world, we're going to be dissatisfied. And we're not going to live the good life. The truly, uh, the true prosperity gospel we might call it. We've heard the heretical prosperity gospel. Well, this, this is the true riches. Finding contentment in, in him, I believe. So I would argue that this is one of the major keys to Christian maturity, is contentment. How do we reach that? Well, Paul tells us here, and it's very simple, by being content in Christ and who he is and all that we have in him. With a new year on the horizon and Christmas season, it's become so commercialized, it's very easy for us now to be discontent, right? And think about, well, 2024 will be better than 2023. 2023, what a great year. I didn't accomplish a lot. I'm very unhappy. I'll be unhappy. I'll be happier in a new year. So we're thinking about this right now. So I thought this was, this was pertinent for us to consider this morning, what Paul says here about contentment. It says it in other places. Now the context is important, of course, as we know, as a church that is given to praise God. One of the reasons we're eager to become members, expositional, verse-by-verse, book-by-book preaching. I'm even a little uncomfortable jumping in like this. Let's get the context. Paul here is showing gratitude for a gift that the church at Philippi has given him. It's likely monetary. Uh, and it takes him about ten verses to do so because he wants them to know that he's sitting here in prison, by the way. He's in prison, wringing his hands over his needs being met. He wants to thank them, but not in a way that suggests that the Lord was not sufficient for him, that he was not enough. So in verse 10, he says he rejoiced at their concern over him, but it's here that we learn the pro profound lessons as Christians about how to live the good life. Because the good life is the contented life. It's the life that says, in Christ, I have everything I need. I am content in Christ. Is that you? Is that me? 
Well, my first point is this, and this, this is good news. At least it's good news for me, and I think it will be for you. We must learn contentment. Uh, I might phrase it this way. We may learn contentment. Paul had to learn the secret of contentment. Like I said, we are naturally discontented, but by God's grace, we can learn to be content. Paul did. Verse 11, he says, and we must. I mean, think about this. The inspired apostle who saw Christ, who saw the, the, the risen Lord, encountered him, had to learn how to be content. That right there makes me feel better. None of you? We have to learn. He didn't come out of the womb. He didn't come, didn't come to Christ naturally content. He realizes the same thing that we do. We must learn it. So what is contentment? Well, I love the Puritans. They often say things far better than I can. And so a good old Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs, he defined it this way. And I love this definition. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every, every condition. It is the inward submission of the heart to God. It's that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to, boy, there's where we get in trouble in now. As rebels, we don't often like to submit, do we? Especially we don't understand the ways of God with us. But it freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposable in every condition. Michael Scott Horton, uh, who's a, a contemporary teacher, says, Being content with life means joyfully accepting the circumstances in which God's providence has placed me. And that's a good summary of what Burroughs said. Joyfully accepting it. Not grudgingly accepting it. How can Paul do this? How can we talk about contentment? How can Paul say, I have learned the secret of being content? Well, it's very simple. He has Christ. I've learned to abound whether I have little or much, he says. And he's writing from prison. Have you ever realized that a lot of our Christian heroes are jailbirds? Right? Paul is. He's in prison. He's talking about being content. He's telling us this morning, I don't think he us is in prison, right? You probably drove here in a car. You probably had like a screen in your car. You probably have phones. You can, you know, we're really spoiled, but yet we're discontent. But Paul in prison says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I have Christ. He fleshes this out a little bit, I think, in Timothy 6, 6 through 10. This is, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich... Or you might insert they're famous or popular or have thousands of followers on Facebook or whatever it is that makes you happy in this world that you don't think you can live without. Whatever it is, he says, for those who desire to be rich or that fall into temptation, into a harmful snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not saying money is the root of all evil, but the love of money, right? The 
The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. In other words, when they've sought to find their contentment in something in this world, they've wandered away from the faith. Because they didn't find what they're looking for. To quote a good old 80s song, they're looking for love in all their own places, weren't they? In, the, in place that cannot be found. It can be found in money. But think about John Rockefeller, just a little bit more. Are you kidding? And there are times I think if I had all that money, that's all I'd need. I'd be happy. I've got everything but that. And then I'd be happy. I can pay all my bills. But no. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's just an illustration. Paul's a great preacher. It hits home with us, doesn't it? So we must learn the secret of contentment. One who is content in Christ can handle any situation with peace and joy. See this in verses 12 and 13. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One who is content in Christ can handle any situation with peace and joy. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now we have this on our desk usually you know, in our workplace and it's like we're spiritual supermen, superwomen who can leap over the devil in a single bound and things like that. We think that's what it means. It really doesn't mean that. It's actually a far greater promise. It's something far better because it's a promise of the good life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul can be happy with much. He can be happy with little. He can be in good circumstances and bad and sunshine and in rain. Because his contentment isn't on this world, but it's in Christ. And Christ gives him strength to handle adversity. Are you going through adversity right now? Ever been through adversity? You have. If you are now, you will. We know it's just around the corner, isn't it? We never know. But Paul says, even then, even so, it is well with my soul. And this means that we can handle adversity, even suffering, well by God's grace. And afflictions will come. Some of you, you're in the throes of it probably right now. Even if you're in, coming to the holiday season, you've lost someone this year you loved and you're stretching. Oh boy, I've got to face Christmas and got to talk a lot. I'm just down because I've lost someone. It may just be that. But afflictions will come. Adversity will come. We live in a fallen world. It's dangerous, isn't it? Growing more so seemingly all the time. But it's especially true for Christians, we face additional difficulties that simply come with being followers of Christ. I mean, Jesus said, if I suffer, you're going to suffer. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. And we're starting to experience that just a little bit in this country. We've really not been cut for the cause of Christ, have we? But maybe it's coming. I don't know. But Jesus told us there's a cross, there, there's, a, there's a steep cost of discipleship. We must be willing to take our crosses daily, he says. And so recognizing the inevitability of, of hardship, I think, helps us to face them with a certain degree of contentment because we know that we have Jesus for that adversity, for those circumstances. So our problems don't define us. You know, you've met people, their problems. Or maybe it's depression or anxiety or, or, or some tragedy. It defines them. It's their identity. It's not in Christ, it's in that. But no, we, we don't have to be that way. We can, we can face that, those terrible things that make us weep, of course, rightly so, but we can face it with contentment. Because at the end of the day, all hardships, all suffering, all adversity, every, every instance of God's ordained 
Christ-exalting circumstances that come into the life of the believer. And we must accept them from the hand of a sovereign and good God because our hope in God is unshakable. After all, did not the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 28 says, we have come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Friends, there's a whole lot of shaking going on in the world, isn't there, right now? And that's true in any time in history, really. But we've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Your prize, your treasure, it can't be taken away. It can't be shaken. You can't lose it. No matter what the interest rates are, <laughs> death can't snatch you out of his hands. Nothing can. We heard this last week in Pastor Donald's sermon in John 10. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Nothing, nothing can shake that kingdom. But when we cannot bear hardships, it reveals a deep problem, I think, in our souls. And, and when we cannot handle them and we freak out, then we're in spiritual danger. So it tells us a lot about where our hearts are, where our treasure is. We must recognize God's providence in every situation we face. Whether we are suffering from a debilitating or even deadly physical ailment, or we've lost a dear loved one to death, or been mistreated unjustly by sinful people at, in church or at work or, or somewhere else. When we accept all hardships as from the hand of our loving Heavenly Father, we grow in maturity, we grow in holiness, we grow in contentment. Psalm 112, 6 through 8, one of my favorite psalms says this, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. Love the way the old King James translates it. He's not afraid of ill tidings. It sounds foreboding, doesn't it? He's not afraid of ill tidings. He's not afraid of bad news. Are you, are you paranoid about you know, checking your email? Some, there have been times in my life I didn't want to check my email. Oh, boy. I'm going to hear from my boss. I'm going to hear from somebody in the church. I'm going to hear something. And boy, I dread it. You know the feeling. But if you're content in Christ, he's saying you don't have to be afraid of bad news. He says his heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Your heart can be steady in the cauldron of suffering. Think of Job. Is there a better illustration in the Bible but also in human history than Job? I mean, Job faced this personal holocaust. He lost his family. He lost all of his things. He lost his wife. She finally just kind of turned against God and said, you continue to trust this God? Curse him and die, Job. He's not trustworthy. So he lost her. And yet what did he say? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then later he says, shall we, shall we accept good from the hand of God? Not adversity or the Hebrew word is ra'ach. Literally means evil. And of course God's not the author of evil. A good translation is adversity. So shall we accept one from the hand of God and not the other? Hmm. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Job worships God not in spite of his affliction. He worships God out of his affliction. Because his contentment's found somewhere else. And now we know we read on, right? We know he, he demonstrates some discontentment. Those friends come to him. And boy, what friends those are. Friends like those, you don't need enemies, right? But that's another sermon for another time. So if one is content in Christ, he can handle any situation with peace and joy. 
Thirdly, if Christ is your treasure, then you can be content with little or much. As he says here in 12 and 13. Paul is the illustration for this. Paul's life, Paul's ministry. Paul has learned to be content in whatever circumstance he faced. What are circumstances? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians 11. Just a little bit back to your left. Verses 23 to 29. He talks about his ministry and he says this. And he says this with no small level of joy. He says, are they servants of Christ? Now the context, he's speaking of these super apostles. He's defending his ministry against these super apostles who have come in and they're, you know, they're, they're more well spoken than he is. They seem to be doing all these miracles, all these, you know, all the glitz and glam and all, the, uh, all this uh, notoriety they've been gaining. And he's saying, no, I'm, I'm, I am the true apostle. So that's the context. He says, are they, that's the super apostles, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And then he gives us his ministry resume. If you're here considering going to ministry, here's your resume right here. I am talking like a madman, because he's a better apostle, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Well, sign me up for that, right? Oh, but he goes on. Listen to this. Five times. I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times. I was beaten with rods. Once. I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He's a loving pastor. He almost says, that's almost worse. The anxiety for my people. And he says, who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. Wow. What a litany of suffering, right? I mean, it's, it's poetic almost, isn't it? How he just, it's like a Gatling gun. Just, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, danger from my people, and danger from the, uh, the Gentiles, and danger of floods, and danger uh, from animals, and danger of hunger, and on and on and on he goes. And he says he's content. And of course, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, this next chapter, he, he experiences this thorn in the flesh. He's caught up to the third heaven. God gives him this vision. He can't, there are aspects of it he can't even reveal because it's so great. And God, to humble him, gave him a thorn in his flesh. Now, we don't know what the thorn is. There's a lot of speculation. It's probably something physical. Probably some physical suffering. Then he prayed three times. God would remove it. And God said, no. Because my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul knows this. My grace is sufficient for you. And in verses 8 to 10 in chapter 12, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. You ever prayed you'd be removed from circumstances and God said no? But he said to me, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Boy, is that countercultural? Is that contrary to how the world thinks? And contrary to the way the world tells you to think, right? 
He's content in those things. He will, when he's weak, he is strong because he knows that his strength comes from Christ. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of all the things that show my weakness. And here's what Paul calls it, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-11. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, the treasure of the gospel, of, of gospel proclamation, that's the treasure. In jars of clay, that's in human, weak human beings. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And I love this. Next couplet. Perplexed, but not forsaken. Are you ever perplexed at God's ways with you? You just don't know why he's doing what he's doing? You're not sure it's necessary? Well, join the club. Paul says, I am perplexed. I'm glad because I'm often perplexed. I'm perplexed, but not forsaken. God hasn't left me. That's what he's saying. Not forsaken, not at all, not by any means. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So he's laid down his life for the sake of the gospel with joy. He's exhibiting the, uh, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Calvary road of suffering that all of us is called to walk, and he loves it. And how can he say that? Is he some kind of sadist? Is he crazy? No, his satisfaction is in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul knows. He's able to call it momentary light affliction. He goes on to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, and we, we know that, don't we, as we get older. Our inner self is being renewed day by day by the power of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. For this, get this, all the things I read to you, right, all that suffering. He says this, this momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He just dismisses all that as as momentary light affliction have you suffered like the apostle Paul I can't say I have I've got to be honest I don't know if I've ever even been cut for the sake of the gospel and he calls it momentary light affliction and he says it's producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all compare because we look not to the things we see to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen for the things that are unseen are more real than the things that we see that's why he can be content. He's got that perspective because he knows that eternity and Christ and all the things he has in him, that's more real than the things he does see. The flesh and the blood and all that. And that should be our perspective. When we have that perspective, yes, we can be content no matter what is going on in our lives. I wish I could say I mastered that. Paul had. That's why he's a good illustration. We think about Habakkuk. Something very similar in the Old Testament. Uh, chapter 3, the end of Habakkuk. He's querying God and wondering why the wicked Babylonians are seemingly, uh, they're prospering, they're evil, wicked, godless people, and they're prospering at the expense of God's people, the Israelites. He's saying, why? I mean, you've asked that, haven't you? I have too. Psalm 73, Asaph has a beautiful uh, excursus on that. We won't get into that now. 
But he says this, he concludes in the end, Habakkuk concludes that, though the fig tree should not blossom or fruit beyond the vines, the, the produce of the olive fail and the field yield no food. Now keep in mind, this is an agrarian economy. They're dependent upon uh, the, uh, the, the, the fig blossoming and the fruit being on the vine and the olive producing its, uh, its, its yield. Though it yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Friends, that's got to be the cry of our heart, doesn't it? And I want that. That's what I pray for. Just make this. No, the bank account might be empty. And though I might not get for Christmas one, I won't. I mean, you hear. You know, this is, these aren't really threats, are they? Well, compared to this. We want to take joy in the God of our salvation. We must pursue contentment. We can learn contentment when we learn that Christ is all we need. What about discontentment? I started out with discontentment. Right? I argued that we are naturally discontent. I am naturally discontent. I, I should write a book on that, but no one will read that. Discontentment, all the things. You just say, yep, that's right. Me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. Right? I don't want you in your heart because it's what's in my heart. This is my next point. It's discontentment is sinful covetousness. That's why it's such a problem. I want to go to one of my, another one of my old heroes here. I'm a church historian, so forgive me. I talk about the past a lot. Thomas Boston, another good old Puritan. He had a very subtly titled sermon called The Hellish Sin of Discontent. Don't miss that one. It is a wonderful sermon. He said the 10th commandment forbids discernment. Why? And he, he lays it out. Now, some of these are his and some are mine. I don't remember which. So I'm just going to lay them out for you here. To be discontent, this is six things. To be discontent is to mistrust God. You know, we tend to think discontentment is one of those respectable sins. This is as it's been called. Well, we don't, you know, don't really see that. It's not like adultery or you know, one of the big ten. When actually it is. To be discontent is to mistrust God. Because when I am discontented, I am coveting what God has not been pleased to give me. Second. Discontentment amounts to complaining against God's plan. Discontentment says, I love me and I have a wonderful plan for my life. That's what it says to God. Thirdly, discontentment exhibits a desire to be sovereign. You know, God, you're doing an okay job here, but I want to write my own story. That's what discontentment says. Hey, you know, that, you're doing fine, but I don't, I don't think so. I can do better. Fourthly, discontentment covets something God has not been pleased to give us. Have a Chevrolet, really like a BMW. You know the plants right down here, God. <laughs> right? Or you covet someone else's life? Well, they've got it made. It's discontentment, isn't it? Fifthly, discontentment subtly or not so subtly communicates that God has made a mistake. Mm. We are rebellious, aren't we? And this can manifest itself in anything as subtle as wishing I had somebody else's children. Come on, you've done that, right? Well, if my children were just like his children, they would behave that way. Of course, you don't see them at home, right? <laughs> But it can be something as, as seemingly silly as that to something as egregious as wanting to change my gender. Because I want to be king. I want to be king of the world and king over the throne of my life. And so I, you, you say I'm, a, I'm born a female, I'm going to make myself a male. What an egregious sin. And friends, we need to call it what it is. And I'll be afraid without any fear because God's word is clear. But that's discontentment. That's a species of discontentment that it just goes all the way, doesn't it? 
we need not be self-righteous that we've not gone that far because we're discontented about lots of other things. And thank God we've not gone that far. Sixthly, discontentment denies the wisdom of God and exalts my wisdom. I mean, isn't this precisely what Eve did the Garden of Eden when she said, has, did God really say? Or when the, the serpent said that and she bought into it? Has God really said? So really, at the heart of the first sin was discontentment. Not being content with the God who made you. That's part of it, isn't it? So how can we be content? Well, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now follow the logic here. The apostles' logic in these verses and apply them to situations in our life. And here's some, uh, some application points. So we get toward the end here. One. Conditions and circumstances in life are always changing. Therefore, my satisfaction and joy must be, not be tied to circumstances. There's an old country song. I like it because it says, the only thing that stays the same is everything's always changing. There's a lot of wisdom in that, right? That's, that's the only thing that stays the same. I told my kids that. Everything changes all the time. We change. The world changes. iPhone changes. Everything. No, nothing stays the same, does it? And Jesus cannot be merely the one who supplies my material and physical needs. That is idolatry. That's not believing the Christ of the Bible. I mean, let's face it, any fool would want that Jesus who can give me prosperity and fame and fortune. Yeah, the, the prosperity Jesus, yeah, any fool would want that Jesus, right? No wonder there's thousands of people in those churches. I see why. Yeah. Come here, do your magic work, magic trick, you know, put your $100 in to get tenfold, whatever. Those false promises, I, I get it. Place of the idolatry of the human heart. I mean, to want Jesus who merely gives me material things or good health and not the Jesus of the Bible is just simple, uh, simply idolatry. It's worshiping the gift and not the giver. John Piper said this, and it's hard to hear. But I think it's, it's good for us to hear. He says, I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little child smashes through the windshield and lands dead on the street. And you say... Through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will see us through. He is our treasure. Whom I in heaven but you. And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my little child may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look glorious as God. Not as a giver of cars or safety or health. That makes God look glorious as God. God is most glorified in us and we are most satisfied in Him in the midst of loss. And not prosperity. And I think the Apostle Paul would hear that. you say, that sounds harsh. I think the Apostle would hear that say, amen. And that's what he's saying is that after that whole litany of his suffering... Because contentment comes when I melt my will and my desires into Christ's will and his desires. Even when I struggle to understand my circumstances. And I can tell you that I have struggled mightily in my adult life to understand the ways of God with me. And I've argued with God every bit as much as Job has. And you probably have too. 
But we must melt our will and our desires into Christ's will and his desires. When Paul did this, that's why he's such a tremendous model for us. I mean, hardship typically leaves us preoccupied with our own difficulties. I mean, when we are self-absorbed, our focus remains on our troubles and our finding release from the troubles. And so discontentment is the inevitable result. Thus we must learn to give over our will and our desires to Christ and be ruled by Him and His desires. And contentment comes when I realize and submit to that God, the notion, the truth that God is working in my hardship and that ultimately these hardships are actually mercies from God for my ultimate good and His ultimate glory. I like to call it, and if you're in the Baptist career a couple months ago, you know this, uncomfortable grace. When God gives you uncomfortable grace, it's still grace from the hand of a good God. Second application, what matters supremely in life is my soul and my relationship to God because Christ's death and resurrection is my only hope. Hope is your most powerful possession. Hope is the sunshine and the rain of our lives. It's what makes us grow, it's what makes, what makes us thrive. We, we, without hope, we won't flourish. There's an old saying that I heard growing up, said human beings can live 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air, but not four seconds without hope. And it's true, isn't it? Hope keeps us alive. So where's your hope? Are you hoping in Christ? They're hoping in something else. Because everything else, money and family and friends and bosses and careers and boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives and fame will all eventually let you down. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, and I love that book. That is a goofy book, but I love its goofiness. That is the, that is the Bible's country western song because he, he kind of tries all that stuff and he gets in the middle and he, in the end it all comes back because he finds it all in God, Right? But he tells us, eventually, you will lose it all. You're going to lose it all. All of it. Except what you have laid up eternally. You're going to lose all of it. I would argue that is the, that is the uh, thesis statement of that book. You're going to lose it all. Everything you have here. I mean, even money. Proverbs 23.5 talks about how your, your money takes wings and it flies away. And sometimes I thought mine takes wings and flies away before it even gets in my account, right? It's spent already. <laughs> we know it's true, don't we? Thirdly, God is concerned about me as my father and nothing happens to me apart from his will. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. God has you in the palm of his hand. He is meticulously sovereign. Fourthly, God's will and God's ways with us are often a great mystery, but I know that whatever he wills or permits is for my good. God is never late and he always gets the right address. Every single time. Never late. Always gets the right address. I mean, Romans 8, 28. God calls us what? All things sort together for good. I think I wrote last month called God's alibi. And God doesn't need an alibi before people jump on me. But no, this is God saying, I cause all things sort together for your good and my glory. All things. Everything. Nothing accepted. Every situation in life is an unfolding and some manifestation of God's and his goodness and his grace. And therefore, my business, your business, is to look for special manifestation of God's goodness and be prepared for surprises, curveballs, and blessings. God's a good curveball pitcher, isn't he? Fifthly, 
I must not regard my circumstances and conditions in and of themselves, but as part of God's dealings with me and the work of perfecting my soul and bringing me to final perfection. Suffering is a big part of this because suffering will wean you from loving this world too much. Suffering will cause you to look to another world. You'll say, you know, if this is all there is, kind of like Tom Brady, boy, is this all there is? This is some kind of joke. No, 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 it's not all there is. We know that, don't we? We have this kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have this Savior who loves us and gave himself up for us. Sixthly, whatever my condition may be at this present moment, it's only temporary. John MacArthur said the best way out of your problems is through your problems. It's the only way, right? And, and it's temporary. It's through your problems. You're going to go through these things and God's going to shape you and mold you and make you more like Jesus and cut away discontentment and make you be content in Him. And once I learn contentment, how to be content, what will it look like? Practically. Like in day, daily life. I'll close with these, these little nuggets. You will exhibit a deeper love for God's Word if Christ is your all in all, your treasure in the field, your pearl of great price. You will exhibit a greater, deeper love for God's Word. I'll just give you a, a preview of the Courier January. We're going to challenge all Southern Baptists in, in South Carolina to read through the Bible in 2024. So be ready for that. Read through the Bible. Love God's Word. Because my contentment is in, in, in Him and His Word. I, I want to know Him more. And your contentment will grow in direct proportion to the degree to which you know Him. You know his character, his attributes, what to expect from him, who he is and who you are. I mean, the only place you learn about this, God, is who he is and what he does is in his word and seeking to live in obedience every single day to that. Secondly, I will exhibit a deeper and more mature love for God's church. You will love his church more because you will need his church more. The body of Christ, I don't mean the building. I mean, these people around you. And you love people who are different than you, Christians who may not be as mature as you are, or more mature than you are. Because your contentment's not being the most mature Christian at Abner Creek, or the most theologically knowledgeable Christian at Abner Creek, or whatever it is, it will be loving God and loving your neighbor, loving those people around you, and benefiting from those people who may not agree with every point of your theology, or they may not be like you, or from the same place you are. They may be from the deep south, or up north, somewhere else, or the country, but you'll love them. You'll love God and love neighbor. Thirdly, I will not fall apart when adversity comes. I will rest in the absolute sovereignty of God and in His prerogative. I encourage you to memorize Psalm 112, verses 6 through 8. Write that over the door of your hearts. The righteous will never be moved. He's not afraid of those ill tidings. I will not fall apart when adversity comes. Finally, I, will not, I want others to know the, the great game that comes from godliness with contentment. That is evangelism. You will, this Christmas, you're around lost relatives, you'll share the gospel with them because only in Christ will they find hope and peace and the good life of contentment because they know where they're going, they know who they are, they know whose they are. So we find contentment when we look at the cross of Christ. Why do we want anything more than what he has given us? I mean, Christ calls his people and says, if anyone want to come after me, let him deny himself. He even says, if he hate not his own father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, right? That's because we're content in him. He is our all in all. The only way to do that is you're content in Christ. 
And when we are content with Christ, we can say with Paul what he said back in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says this, But whatever gain I had, and he gained a lot, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. May it please God to give us grace to find that kind of contentment in him in this season and in the new year and every season and every year. Let's pray together. Father, we are not a contented people. I do not come claiming to have conquered discontentment. But God, I pray that you would cause us to delight ourselves in Christ to the degree that we are stable when the winds of change and the storms of life blow into our lives, that we find our stability in that great anchor that's anchored in heaven. And Father, do it in us so the world might see us and they would wonder what the hope it is that we have in us that makes us so stable. Oh Lord, do it in us, not for our glory, but for yours. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.